We've been studying the period of the divided kingdom. During that period, 20 kings ruled over the southern kingdom of Judah. All 20 men were descendants of David, but only eight followed in David's righteous ways. The northern kingdom fared, though, even worse. Nineteen kings reigned over Israel, and they were all skunks. Nineteen idolaters on the throne, and all failed to walk in the ways of the Lord. It was tragic. It's no wonder, really, that God's judgment came upon Israel, the northern kingdom, about 130 years before it fell upon Judah. God was patient with both Israel and Judah, but God's patience has its limits. Eventually, sin must be judged. Judgment day occurs for all men. For Israel, it came at the hands of the Assyrian Empire. In 722 B.C., the capital city of Samaria was sacked and the northern ten tribes were scattered. For Judah, God's instrument of judgment was the Babylonians. Judah first felt their fury in 605 B.C. The Babylonians took the Jews back to Babylon as captives, and they deported them in three waves of deportation, in 605, in 597, and in 586 B.C. The final blow, of course, was when Jerusalem was sacked and when the temple was destroyed. That occurred in August of 586 B.C. Tonight we're going to go and take a look at both of these kingdoms, north and south, and follow them through their final throes. We pick up the history around 800 B.C. and the reign of Jehoash in Judah, Jehoahaz in Israel, and we'll cover Israel's last century and the final 220 years of Judah's history. Tonight, when we're done, you'll be one hour older but you'll be 220 years wiser. So you will have made a good investment of your time tonight. We're not going to let any grass grow under our feet. We're going to be moving in a hurry. Jehoash reigned 40 years in Judah, and for the most part, he was a good king. Remember, this was the boy king. He took the throne at seven years old. Can you imagine becoming king as a second grader? His first order was to distribute Nintendos throughout the land. (laughs) Next, he issued an edict requiring all school lunchrooms to serve ice cream as their main course. Seriously, Jehoash had been raised by the godly priest Jehoiada. 2 Kings 12 verse 2 says of Jehoash, He did what was right in the sight of the Lord all of the days in which Jehoiada the priest instructed him. Now, here's the sad summary of Jehoash's life. He followed the Lord only as long as he followed Jehoiada. This is true of many believers. They are willing to walk in the Spirit as long as they are in the shadow of a man. A godly influence is good, but at some point, it needs to become a personal resolve. I believe that too many Christians are like chameleons. They change to the color of their surroundings. You might call it the Jehoash rash. I hope you're cultivating the strength to go it alone. You know, you can ride the coattails of the faith of a friend for only so long. Eventually, guys, we need to learn to stand on our own. Verse 3 tells us, 
but the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places, these low-down high places. Now, Jehoash, he failed to centralize the worship in Judah. That's what these high places were all about. God wanted all Israel, north and south, to worship him at the temple in Jerusalem. This was God's way of maintaining orthodoxy and faith. If the people were allowed to build their own altar or high place and worship individually, ultimately deviations would creep in, idolatry would eventually get a foothold. It was Scripture, not convenience, that should govern their worship. Scripture, not convenience, should be the standard. And in the end, because they violated this, these commands, and because they ended up worshiping individually at their high places, they did fall prey to idolatry And the high places are really what did in the southern kingdom of Judah. You know, I think we too can become guilty of building one of these low-down high places. A high place today is an area in our lives where we try to strike a compromise between what's convenient for us and the demands of discipleship. Maybe it's music. We insist on listening to secular stuff when God is calling us to lay it down, to put it aside. Maybe it's finances. God wants us to give of our resources, but we keep holding back. Maybe it's relationships. God wants us to adopt a Christian perspective to our dating, but we keep wanting to do things our own way. Hey, we need to destroy the high places. We need to live based on commitment, not convenience. If you tolerate these high places, these areas of your life where convenience is tolerated, eventually it will lead to your downfall. If you don't believe me, just ask Judah. When Jehoash took the throne, it had been 135 years since Solomon built the temple. And the temple was due a facelift. To his credit, Jehoash made the needed repairs. Ironically, though, After Jehoash had put forth such great effort to repair the temple, he depleted it of many of its treasures. When the king of Syria threatened to attack Judah rather than trust the Lord, Jehoash used the temple treasure to buy a ransom. He refurbished the temple only to lose it because he didn't refurbish and fortify his faith. You know, we're all a temple. In the New Testament, you and I are the temple of God. And we need to constantly be doing those things that's going to build up and fortify our faith. We need to read the Word. We need to fellowship. We need to pray. We need to spend time with God, not just on Sunday morning or Sunday night, but throughout the week. We need to be doing those things that's going to strengthen and fortify our faith. We are the temple. And we need to constantly be refortifying and refurbishing it. Here's a good quote. My body is a temple with ample parking in the rear. Just a joke. Jehoash was eventually assassinated by two of his own servants. Now, during this time, Israel was being ruled by a man named Jehoahaz. And like all the kings of Israel, he followed the sin of Jeroboam. You remember Jeroboam had made the golden calves there in Dan in Bethel. 
And his sin was perpetuated throughout the whole history of the northern kingdom of Israel. One bad apple does spoil a whole bunch. Jeroboam is proof. Jehoahaz, though, was like many people. The only time he sought the Lord was when he was in trouble. And so when the Assyrians came against him, we're told in verse 4, Jehoahaz pleaded with the Lord, and the Lord listened to him. God raised up a deliverer. But as soon as the threat passed, Israel went right back to her idols. I think Israel's biggest problem was that it was a nation that lacked gratitude. Israel wasn't thankful. And I believe ingratitude is really the root cause of every sin. I'm sure if we were truly grateful for what God had done for us, we would be far more obedient. Don't you think? Our Most of our problem, most of our bad attitude grows out of an ingratitude. Jehoahaz's son, Joash, took over after him, and he reigned 16 years over Israel. And one of the problems that we run into in 2 Kings is this overlap of names. We got two Jeroboams, we got two Joashes, we got two Jehorams. Different men, all with the same name, and they even sound alike. Remember, Jehoash of Judah was the boy king who was hidden. The king here in chapter 13 is the Joash of Israel. And when Joash dies, his son, Jeroboam, succeeds. And this is Jeroboam II. He's named after the northern kingdom's first king. And he rules 41 years longest among Israel's kings. At the end of chapter 13, Elisha the prophet contracts a fatal illness. We're not told how old he was at the time, but one commentator suggests that he was 120 years old. Elisha had been a fixture in Israel for a long, long time. He had been a beacon of truth and righteousness in a rebellious land. Joash, who was king at the time, pays Elisha a visit. Apparently, he expected Elisha to depart from the earth in the same way that Elijah had in a fiery chariot. For he cries out in verse 14, Oh, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen. But not this time. It's amazing. Elisha healed others, but when it came time for God to take him, it was through a fatal illness. You see, not all God's servants are to be healed. Some will die, like Elisha. It's true that healing is not always in the will of God for our lives. At least not temporary healing. Ultimate healing, yes. But sometimes that's accomplished by us going on to be with Jesus. God uses Elisha on his deathbed to convey a prophecy. He tells Joash to grab the bow next to his bed. The old prophet wraps his hands around the king's hands and they shoot an arrow out the window. And he explains how that God will deliver Israel from the Syrians. Then Elisha tells Joash to take an arrow and strike the ground. Joash hits the ground three times and stops. And Elisha gets angry at him. He tells Joash in verse 19, You should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck Syria till you had destroyed it. But now you will strike Syria only three times. Elisha could tell by the king's lack of fervor that it was indicative 
of the king's overall lack of resolve. That moment when he took this arrow and he struck it only three times was revealing of the man's character. I think one of our problems with sin is that we're not fervent enough. We're not passionate enough in our resolve to overcome it in our lives. We strike at it a couple of times, two or three times, and then we quit. We let it take over. We get it on the rope, so to speak, and then we let it go. We need the killer instinct. If Joash had been truly desperate for victory, he would have smacked that arrow on the ground until it had broken. You remember when Bo Jackson played baseball and he happened to strike out? He would take his bat and he would just break it over his knee. He's a pretty powerful dude. He wasn't being a bad sport. At least I didn't think he was. As much as he was revealing his passion and his fervor and his determination to do better, Bo knows determination. What Joash didn't know was persistence, was resolve and determination. You can't overcome sin by trying once and then quitting. Real faith keeps pounding away until the chains eventually break and fall off. In verse 20, Elisha dies and is buried in a simple grave. And we read in verse 21, So it was as they were burying a man that suddenly they spied a band of raiders, and they put the man in the tomb of Elisha. And when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. Isn't that amazing? Even after Elisha was dead, he was still working miracles. His bones were still blessing people. You remember, Elisha had asked Elijah for a double portion of the Holy Spirit. And I think according to this verse, he got his request, didn't he? Chapter 14 shifts uh, southward to Judah and King Amaziah, successor of Jehoash. Amaziah ruled Judah for a quarter century and was a good king. But Amaziah had a problem. His problem was pride. He allowed a few early successes to go to his head. He got cocky. Verse 7 tells us that He defeated the Edomites. And his victory made him think that he could attack and defeat the northern kingdom of Israel. In verse 9, the king of Israel, though, warns him that Judah is a thistle bush compared to the strong cedar tree of Israel. Amaziah refuses to listen to reason and he leads Judah to disaster. Israel does defeat Judah. Tears down, they tear down the walls of Jerusalem and they take many of the temple treasures. The lesson from Amaziah is to beware of pride. Just because you win a few peewee games doesn't mean you're ready for the Atlanta Braves. You're still a thistle bush compared to the cedar tree. Amaziah miscalculated because of his pride and it cost him. Don't you make that mistake. Now, during the reigns of Joash and Jeroboam II, the northern kingdom of Israel experienced a period of strength and prosperity. In essence, it was a final reprieve. It was a calm before the storm. 
It was one last period of God's blessings before God's judgment. During this time, God sent prophets like Hosea and Amos to warn Israel. Jonah was also a prophet sent to Israel. He ministered during the reign of Jeroboam II, and he's actually mentioned by name in chapter 14, verse 25. All of this prophetic activity, all this flurry of warning was God's final call to the nation Israel. In Judah, Azariah reigns in the place of his father, Amaziah. And again, don't get confused. We have had two Ahaziahs, an Amaziah, and an Azariah. Follow the chart in your study guide. That'll help you out. This Azariah, though, also goes by the name Uzziah. And he's well known in the book of Isaiah by that name. In fact, Isaiah began his ministry. He dates his vision of God in his calling in the year that King Uzziah died. Uzziah, or Azariah, was a godly king. He reigned 52 years, but he also fell victim to pride. And we'll discover this more in Second Chronicles chapter 26. He wanted not only to be king, he also wanted to be priest. And he tried to do both roles. And when he went into the temple to offer the sacrifice to spread the incense around and all, God struck him with leprosy because he had overstepped the line. And he had moved into an arena that God had not called him to pursue. Israel's final days, the northern kingdom, the final days before God's judgment, saw a succession of several kings who reigned for brief periods of time. It was really a time of anarchy that weakened the northern kingdom. Zechariah reigned six months. He was assassinated by a man named Shalom, who in turn reigned a whopping one month until he was assassinated. Menachem took his place and reigned ten years, and it's during his reign that the Assyrians appear. Menachem pays a man by the name of Pul, the king of Assyria, a tribute, a ransom in essence that holds him at bay at least for a time. Secular historians identify this pool as a man named Tiglath-Pelelazir III, or the king of Assyria. When Menachem dies, his son, Pekahiah, takes his place. And Pekahiah reigns two years before he's assassinated by Pekah, a member of his administration. Pekah reigns 20 years, during which the Assyrians begin to plunder Israel's outlying cities and Pekah is assassinated by a man named Hoshea, who is Israel's last king. In Judah, while all this anarchy is going on in the northern kingdom, in Judah, down in the south, Uzziah dies, and he is followed by his son, Jotham. Jotham was also a good and godly king, like his father, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. But notice the reoccurring problem. Notice 2 Kings 15, verse 35. It says, However, the high places were not removed. Those low-down high places. That was eventually what brought about the undoing of the southern kingdom of Judah. These areas of compromise where they refused to be committed and they refused to truly follow the Lord. Now, in chapter 16, Jotham's son, Ahaz, takes over as king of Judah. And verse 2 tells us, Ahaz 
did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. Ahaz practiced idolatry, child sacrifice. He worshipped at the high places. And when Israel and Syria teamed up to attack him, rather than trust the Lord, he tried to buy Assyrian protection. This was a critical mistake. This was like inviting a serial killer to come and live at your house in order to protect you from your neighbor. It's only a matter of time before he turns on you. And at first, Assyria fights for Judah, but by chapter 18, we'll see she's fighting against Judah. In chapter 16, verse 10, we're told that Ahaz goes to Damascus to meet the king of Assyria. And there he gets a look at a pagan altar. It's fancy. It's attractive. It's really quite spectacular in his mind. And so he returns to Jerusalem and he rebuilds a replica of it in the temple. Ahaz begins to reintroduce idolatry into the nation of Judah. He paves the way, really, for his grandson, a man named Manasseh, who will be the most blatant idolater of all. Now, the fall of Israel in her capital city of Samaria is described in chapter 17. Shalmanazar, who is now the king of Assyria, comes against Samaria when he discovers that there is a conspiracy between the Israeli king Hoshea and other nations. It infuriates him. And he goes and he says enough is enough and he goes and he imprisons Hoshea and he unleashes his fury on Samaria. And what a fury that was. This morning I read you a quote from the Haley's Bible handbook that describes the Assyrian army. And just for those who weren't here, let me read it again. This shows you what the Assyrians were like. The Assyrians were great warriors. Most nations then were robber nations. The Assyrians seemed to have been about the worst of them all. They built their state on the loot of other peoples. They practiced cruelty. They skinned their prisoners alive or cut off their hands, feet, noses, ears, or put out their eyes or pulled out their tongues and made mounds of human skulls all to inspire terror. These Assyrians were the people that besieged Samaria for three years, sucking the life out of the city until finally the city was destroyed. Chapter 17 makes it clear that the fall of the northern kingdom was not really the result, though, of Assyria's might or Israel's weakness. It was a result of the judgment of God upon their wickedness and upon their sin. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 10, verse 5, God refers to the Assyrians as the rod of my anger and the staff in whose hand is my indignation. God says that I chose these Assyrians as the instrument of my judgment. Samaria fell, and Israel was scattered because of their persistent sin. They worshipped the golden calves of Jeroboam for their entire history. They sunk to Baal worship at times. They entered into all kinds of idolatry. And though God was faithful to warn them through the prophets, they stubbornly rejected the message, and in the end, they suffered the consequences. Now, the Assyrian policy 
was to displace people from their homeland and settle them in other conquered territories, which meant that they began deporting Hebrews out of the northern kingdom and began scattering them and spreading them throughout the world. At the same time, they were taking Gentiles that they had conquered in other places and they were importing them into Israel. These Gentile immigrants married some of the Hebrews that the Assyrians had left behind in the land and these people came to be called the Samaritans. Chapter 17 tells how they intermingled their pagan beliefs with some Hebrew traditions. And you'll be interested in that term Samaritans because they also appear in the New Testament. They play an important role, in fact, in the life and ministry of Jesus. Actually, there's still a group of Samaritans that exist even till to, even to this day. They still live in the uh, rebuilt city of Samaria there in Israel. While the Assyrians besiege Samaria, they cast a lustful eye toward Judah, Israel's neighbor to the south. Hey, why not knock off two nations while we're at it? That's their attitude. The king of Judah at the time is Ahaz's son, Hezekiah. And unlike his father, Ahaz was a good and godly king. He had even removed the high places. According to chapter 18, verse 4, Hezekiah also broke the sacred pillars cut down the wooden image and broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the children of Israel burned incense to it and called it Nehushtan. The word Nehushtan means a thing of bronze. It's amazing that the Hebrews had actually made an idol out of an instrument of God. You remember when Israel rebelled in the wilderness God sent a plague of serpents into the camp. And Moses made a bronze serpent. And anyone who looked on that bronze serpent would be healed of the snake bite. Bronze was a symbol of judgment. The serpent, a symbol of sin. And so the bronze serpent became a symbol of sin's judgment. It actually was also a symbol of Jesus. And Jesus himself... In John chapter 3, verse 14, compares the bronze serpent in the wilderness with himself. It seems to me, though, whenever people lose the personal awareness of God's presence in their life, their tendency is to substitute for God's presence a reminder of what they used to possess. They get attached to a relic. They get religiously committed to some observance or to some ritual, they find a Nehushtan that they can bow down to and that they can worship. They try to fill the void with resemblance rather than substance. But always understand, the things of God are a sorry substitute for God himself. There are people who come to church and they sit in a particular seat because it was there that God met them one Sunday night several years ago and the Holy Spirit was so real and they had such a wonderful experience sitting in that seat. And so every week they go back to that seat, trusting in that seat rather than in the Holy Spirit. Hey, that seat 
is of no value whatsoever. It's just a Nehushtan. It's just a thing. A bronze thing. The way back to God is not by clinging to some relic. The way back to God is confession. It's repentance. It's trusting in Jesus Christ. I love what chapter 18 verse 5 says of Hezekiah. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor who were before him. Hezekiah was indeed the man of the hour. He was just what Judah needed for the crisis at hand. For rather than bow to the Assyrians any longer, he trusted in the Lord. But Hezekiah wasn't perfect. For in verses 14 through 17, we see him buckling under to the Assyrians. He buckles just a little bit. Hezekiah forgot that the Israeli kings had tried to buy off Assyria and it didn't work. Every time they paid a ransom, Assyria would eventually come back for more and more until they finally took it all. And this is something we shouldn't forget, for this is how Satan works. Sometimes we think, well, if I'll just give in to this temptation a little bit, if I'll just try it once, then maybe it'll go away. I'll do it just this time, and then I'll stop. Don't be foolish. It never works that way. Satan isn't satisfied with stealing a little of your virtue or putting a slight dent in your integrity. He won't be content until he has utterly destroyed you. When you make a little compromise, it leads to bigger and bigger and bigger compromises. Satan is never satisfied with that little compromise. Hezekiah finally comes to this conclusion. He takes his stand. In chapter 18, the Assyrians use some propaganda to break down the people of Jerusalem. The mighty Assyrian army surrounds the walls and calls out to the citizens in their native tongue to give up and to surrender. The Rabshaka, or the spokesman of the Assyrians, he tells them not to trust in God, that other gods have tried to deliver their people but have failed. Why should Judah put their trust in their God? The truth of the matter was, is that the Assyrians had not yet run into the one true God, the God of Israel. Nevertheless, it was a pretty intimidating speech, and it shakes up Hezekiah. And in chapter 19, he asks Isaiah for help, and Isaiah answers the king in verses 6 and 7, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid of the words which you have heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Surely I will send a spirit upon him, and he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. And that is exactly what happens. Assyria is fighting battles on different fronts. And after the king returns... He would love to conquer Judah with as few troops as possible. And so again, he tries to intimidate Hezekiah into surrender. This time he uses a letter in verses 10 through 13. And I love what Hezekiah does in response to this intimidating letter. 
He takes it immediately into the temple. He spreads it out before the Lord. Guys, this is how you and I need to handle our problems. We need to take them to the Lord. We need to spread them out before the Lord. We need to acknowledge that the Lord loves us. He has a plan for us. And Lord, here is my problem and I'm trusting in you. Hezekiah's prayer is a classic. We read in verse 15, O Lord God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim, you are God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, Lord, the kings of Syria, Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they destroyed them. Now, therefore, O Lord, our God, I pray, save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord God, you alone. And in verses 21 through 34, Isaiah brings God's letter to Sennacherib. And he says in verse 22, Whom have you reproached and blasphemed against the Holy One of Israel? In these verses, God reminds Sennacherib that the Hebrew prophets had predicted long ago that he would use the Assyrians as his instrument of judgment. And Sennacherib had blasphemed the God who was responsible for Assyria's success. I love what God says to Sennacherib in verse 27. But I know your dwelling place. In other words, hey man, I know where you live. Pretty threatening coming from God. Before he retired, my dad worked for the telephone company. And this is why when mom started getting obscene phone calls, it was pretty easy for him to trace the call. He got the number and he got the address and the name of the person who owned the particular phone. And he began to drive by the guy's house. He saw his car, even got a good look at the teenage culprit. And then my dad called the boy. And he told him his address. He told him the make and the model and the color of his car. He even gave him a description of what he had been wearing that day. And then the boy was reminded that he didn't know what my dad looked like. But that if he ever made another obscene phone call to my mom, my dad would get him when he least expected it. And he would make sure he could never talk on the telephone again. And needless to say, the phone calls ended from that moment on. It's frightening to hear the words, I know where you live. (laughs) And God is saying to Sennacherib, watch out, man. I know where you live. In verse 28, God says to Assyria that he'll lead her around like a dog on a leash. Remember, at the time, Assyria was the superpower. But God is in control, not Sennacherib. 
or the President of the United States or the Premier of China or any other world leader. In verse 29, God speaks to Judah and promises his people that they'll escape. Verses 32 and 33 promise that the Assyrians will not even launch an attack against Jerusalem. They won't even shoot an arrow. Verse 34, the Lord promises, For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. The showdown occurs at night, just outside Jerusalem's gates in the camp of the Assyrians. And verse 35 tells us, It came to pass on a certain night that the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. That's roughly the population of Columbus, Georgia. I'm telling you, these angels are some pretty rough and tumble dudes. The honcho angels. They're honchos, man. They're tough guys. They're hombres. Here's this angel. He goes out that night and one angel, one combat angel, slays 185,000 Assyrians. It's interesting, not only does the Bible record this slaughter, but secular history also records this event. The next day, Sennacherib tucks tail. He runs home to Nineveh, and there he is later assassinated, worshiping his idols. After all he had seen, you think that he would be worshiping the God of Judah. This whole episode was an amazing victory. In chapter 20, Hezekiah gets seriously sick. And Isaiah tells him in verse 1, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Whoa. Hezekiah, make sure your insurance policy is paid up. Make sure you've got a current will. Take care of all those issues, buddy, because you're going to die. That's not an encouraging prognosis especially when it's coming from the great physician. Hezekiah, though, has seen the power of prayer. And so he prays. And God changes his mind. He heals Hezekiah, and he gives him 15 more years to live. Now, here's the question. Is it really possible to change God's mind? And I believe the answer is a clear-cut yes and no. (laughs) God has some plans that are unalterable. They are set in stone. He has other plans, though, that He leaves subject to our input. As the head of my household, this is how I operate. At times, I make decisions that are not going to change no matter how much pleading and begging takes place. My decision is a done deal. Whereas, on other decisions, I'm open. I'm flexible. In fact, I'm looking for the family's input. And you never really know which decision is which until you ask. This is why God tells us to pray. Often, He wants our input. God wants us to feel a part of his family. And he knows that we will if he gives us some input into the decisions. And so he asks us to pray. 
Tell Him the desires of our heart. Who knows? But that He won't factor our input into His plans. Now, having said that, let me ask another question. Is it wise to change God's mind once He's spoken? Hezekiah was given 15 more years, but it was during those 15 years that his son Manasseh was born. And Manasseh became the vilest king in Judah's history. In fact, Jeremiah 15 verse 4 tells us that the Babylonian captivity, at least partly, was because of Manasseh. Also during these last 15 years of Hezekiah's life, he makes a big time blunder. He shows spies from Babylon, the treasures of Judah, and this is one of the reasons that they return later to invade the land. His last 15 years were marked with tragedy. Perhaps it would have been better for Hezekiah to have submitted to God's original verdict and to have just been content to die. God loves us. God's ways are always best. And we need to be willing to trust him. Now, when Isaiah asks for a sign to validate his promise to Hezekiah, the Lord blows him away. Here's the sign. He turns the sundial back 10 degrees or about 45 minutes. Rather than that day lasting 24 hours, it lasted 23 hours in 15 minutes. Some commentators try to explain this phenomena as a formation of clouds that refracted the sunlight, but that hardly explains what's stated here. There is historical evidence that along with Sennacherib's defeat, certain celestial cataclysmic events may also have taken place. In fact, what caused Joshua's long day may have also happened here. Perhaps a near flyby with another planet. Maybe a comet penetrating the Earth's atmosphere could have called a tilt of the Earth's axis and therefore a shortened day. Interestingly, prior to the days of Hezekiah, all of the world's calendars held to 360-day years, 12 months of 30 days each. The ancient calendar started making adjustments around this time in history. And it's possible that God's attack on the Assyrians, the loss of the 45 minutes, and some kind of cataclysmic astronomical event all coincided. In the latter half of chapter 20, the Babylonians send a get-well delegation to Hezekiah, and this is where he blows it. The king foolishly gives them the royal tour. And he shows them all of Judah's treasure. And in verse 17 and 18, Isaiah rebukes Hezekiah and tells him that the same Babylonians are going to return to cart away your riches and treasures and sons. In chapter 21, Hezekiah's son Manasseh succeeds his father. And tragically, he reigns longer than any other Judean king, 55 years It was the darkest period in the history of the southern kingdom. You might say Manasseh made a mess of Judah. Here's a litany of his sins. He rebuilt the high places. Instituted Baal worship. Even brought it into the temple. 
He was into astrology. He made child sacrifice. He used witchcraft. He practiced fortune telling. He consulted mediums. He filled the streets of Jerusalem with innocent blood. And he stocked the temple of God with idols. How's that for a resume? Tradition even tells us that Manasseh had the prophet Isaiah sawn in two. In 2 Kings chapter 21, verse 13, the prophet pronounces God's judgment on Manasseh. I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. Manasseh, though, becomes an unlikely poster boy for God's amazing grace. Because in 2 Chronicles chapter 33, we're told that at the end of his life, believe it or not, Manasseh repented. And God forgave him. And I dare say, if God can forgive Manasseh of his sin, God can forgive you of yours. In his later years, the king tries to undo some of the damage that he's done, but it was too little too late. After he dies, his son Amon follows in his father's wicked footsteps. Amon reigns just two years and is succeeded by his eight-year-old son, Josiah. Chapter 22 and 23 describe the reign of one of Judah's very best kings, Josiah. Verse 2 of chapter 22 says of Josiah, He did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in all the ways of his father David. He did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. An event took place in Josiah's 18th year that shaped his life forever. While repairs were being done around the temple, an important discovery was made. Tucked away in one of the cobweb corners of the temple, Hilkiah the high priest found a copy of the law. During the reigns of Manasseh and Amon, the law had been neglected. Not even the priest had maintained a copy of the law to study and read. Josiah, though, found this law. Hilkiah found it, and he gave it to the king, Josiah. And in chapter 22, verse 11, we're told that when Josiah read the law, he tore his clothes immediately. It was a sign of repentance. You see, he didn't realize how far Judah had fallen into sin until he had read God's standard. And for the first time, he became aware of just how close Judah was to judgment. Hilkiah also realizes Judah's predicament, and he consults the prophetess Huldah for a word from God. And Huldah tells him that it's really too late to avert the judgment, that God's wrath will not be quenched, but because of Josiah's tenderness... Because of the king's humility, none of the judgments will come upon Judah during his days as king. In chapter 23, Josiah institutes reforms in the southern kingdom of Judah. And the first thing he does is to read the law before all the people. Boy, how we need to get God's word out to God's people. It's hard to really live the Christian life without being able to consult and to study and to read God's wonderful word. But after reading the law to the people, Josiah makes a covenant with God to keep what he's read. Apostle James would be proud of Josiah. The king was determined to be a doer of the word, not a hearer only. Next, Josiah rids Jerusalem and Judah of its idols. He mows down its high places. He even journeys to Bethel to tear down Jeroboam's calves. 
You remember 1 Kings 13, verse 2, a prophet had predicted that a man by the name of Josiah would come and would destroy the altars of Jeroboam. And indeed, 300 years later, that prophecy was fulfilled. This is an amazing example of the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. We think of Bible prophecies yet to be fulfilled, but so many have already been fulfilled, and we can look back in amazement on their trustworthiness. Now, in chapter 23, verse 21, Josiah also reinstitutes the Passover. Verse 22 says that the Passover had been neglected since the days of the judges. Josiah also tosses out the occultists from Judah. And verse 25 sums up the deeds of Josiah. Now before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor after him did any arise like him. And yet, despite Josiah's reforms, he was unable to avert the judgment of God. It seems that Josiah's political reforms came from the top down. And you can't really legislate godliness and spirituality and holiness. This is the mistake that we make today. We think that we can legislate morality or we can legislate spirituality. We can't do it. It's just reform. It's not what we really need, which is revival. That's what we truly need. It's when hearts begin to change. That's when reforms become meaningful. And not before. In verse 29, Josiah dies at Megiddo, trying to confront the Egyptian Pharaoh. At the time... The world was headed for a strategic battle. It was in 609 B.C. And the Babylonians and Medes were threatening the Assyrian Empire. The two sides met at the town of Carchemish. Egypt was headed north to fight on behalf of the Assyrians. Josiah, though, was courting the favor of the Babylonians. So he went out to stop Egypt. It was... To his demise, he died in the battle, and Jehoahaz's son takes his place. Jehoahaz, his son, takes his place. This Jehoahaz, though, reigns only three months. Pharaoh Necho doesn't like him and throws him into prison. He puts his son Eliakim, or Jehoiakim, on the throne. Jehoiakim serves as an Egyptian puppet. He taxes the people to pad the pockets of the Egyptians. Jehoiakim was an evil king. He reigned in Judah for 11 years. The Babylonians defeated the Assyrians at the Battle of Carchemish in 605 B.C. And fresh off the heels of victory, they want to flex their muscle. So they move south against the nation of Judah. This Jehoiakim surrenders to the Babylonians and he pays tribute. And the Babylonians begin their reign of terror upon Judah and Jerusalem. Now understand, the Babylonians had a different policy than the Assyrians when it came to the conquered people. The Assyrians would scatter the people. The Babylonians, though, would take the people back to Babylon to live in exile. At this time, the Babylonians took Daniel and his three Hebrew friends back to Babylon. And this was the first wave of deportation. It occurred in 605 B.C. 
Warren Wiersbe writes, If the Jews wanted to live like the idolaters, let them live with the idolaters. Apparently that was God's thinking. He wanted to send them back to Babylon. Let them live in Babylon for a time. Let them get a taste of what it's like to live under the reign of idols. Judah remains in exile in Babylon for 70 years before God allows them to return to the land. It takes a captivity of 70 years to eventually cure them of idolatry. When Jehoiakim dies, his son Jehoiakim takes his place. Jeremiah calls him Coniah, and he too was an evil man. Coniah the barbarian, you might call him. Jehoiakim rules just three months before the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar takes him prisoner. This is the deportation of 597 B.C. At this time, Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, plundered many of the temple treasures that Hezekiah had shown the spies. And he took captive to Babylon 10,000 Jews, including King Jehoiakim and the prophet Ezekiel. In Jehoiakim's place, Nebuchadnezzar makes his uncle Madaniah king, and he changes his name to Zedekiah. This was also an evil king, and it was under his administration that Jeremiah the prophet was flogged and thrown into the stocks. It's when Zedekiah rebels against the Babylonians that Nebuchadnezzar says, enough is enough, and he launches his third and final assault against Jerusalem. Chapter 25 describes the fall of Jerusalem in August of 586 B.C. The siege actually began earlier. It began in the 10th day of the 10th month. The walls were breached a year and a half later on the 9th day of the 4th month, in the month of our month of July. And then a Babylonian general named Nebuzaradan entered Jerusalem on the 7th day of the 5th month to dismantle the city. Tradition tells us that the temple was destroyed on the ninth day of the fifth month. According to Ezekiel 24, among the exiles living in Babylon at the time, Ezekiel's wife died on the same day that Jerusalem fell. And it was God's symbolic way of illustrating the death of his bride, his people Judah. One of the great ironies of history is that when the Romans invade Jerusalem in 70 A.D., they destroy the rebuilt temple on the very same day that the Babylonians had destroyed Solomon's temple. Some 640 years earlier. As you can imagine, the ninth day of the fifth month, or as the Jews call it, Tisha B'Av, has become an infamous day on the Hebrew calendar. It's a day of mourning. It's a day of sadness. For the first nine days of the month of Av, the Jews neither eat meat nor bathe. They mourn the tragic event that helped shape so much of their history. And then on Tisha B'Av, they read Jeremiah's book of lamentation, and they weep over their loss. It becomes a day of mourning and fasting for them. Verse 7 tells us the awful punishment that was brought upon King Zedekiah. Then they killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, put out the eyes of Zedekiah, bound him with bronze fetters, and took him to Babylon. Can you imagine a worse punishment? 
They killed his son before his eyes. Then they plucked out his eyes so that the last thing the man remembered seeing was the death of his sons. Talk about cruel and unusual punishment, a brutal torture. After the fall of the kingdom of Judah, the Babylonians appoint a governor to rule over the skeleton group they choose to leave behind. Gedaliah was the man. But a Jew by the name of Ishmael assassinates Gedaliah, and the remaining Jews flee to Egypt, afraid that Babylon will retaliate for the assassination of their governor. Let me close our study tonight. Our study of the kings of Israel and Judah with a poem by Lois Cheney. It's entitled, God is No Fool, and I think it speaks for itself, and it has an important warning, an important word to you and me. Lois Cheney writes, They say that God has infinite patience, and that is a great comfort. They say God is always there, and that is a deep satisfaction. They say that God will always take you back, and I get lazy in that certitude. They say that God never gives up, and I count on that. They say you can go away for years and years, and He'll be there waiting when you come back. They say you can make mistake after mistake, and God will always forgive and forget. They say lots of things, these people who never read the Old Testament. There comes a time, a definite time, for sure time, when God turns around. I don't believe God shed his skin when Christ brought the New Testament. Christ showed us a new side of God, and it is truly wonderful. But he didn't change God. God remains forever and ever. And that God is no fool. God is so, so patient. What we've read tonight shows that his patience has its limits. Father, help us to never test those limits. Help us to never take your patience and your mercies for granted. Help us, Lord, to be quick to hear. To be doers of the word and not hearers only. To tear down the high places in our lives lest Satan get a foothold and bring us down. Father, we've read tonight that it can happen. Help us beware. In Jesus' name, amen.